Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Pastor Steve Keller. Um, if you were not with us last week, uh, Chris Fur preached to us, and Chris is an EPC missionary. I had heard Chris preach before. Um, I had never heard Chris preach like he preached last week, though. And many of you, yeah, many of you experienced just this message that was right out of God's heart. And what's, what's just fascinating about his message is I had already had this week's message pretty much put together. And I thought, wow, the, the message I have to preach is a big jump forward. And then lo and behold, Chris preaches a message that dovetails with mine, and I am still astounded with the wisdom and the timing and just the way God works. So anyway, he talked to us last week about something that he called the meantime. And uh, the meantime, he defined it pretty well. It's one of those, those times in life where we're just kind of moving through, and we've got plans, and we know how things are going to work. We've kind of got the destination figured out, and, you know, all, 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 the whole journey, we're walking along with God, and suddenly, it's like God just parks us, like you park a car. You know, we're planning on this journey, continuing, and it's just like suddenly we find ourselves in this place that we call the wilderness or the desert. It's kind of like God took us and he just, you know, stuck us on a shelf. We feel like he hit the pause button in our lives. And and then, then he brought that beautiful challenge. When that happens to us, we have to resist the temptation which is just like in the Garden of Eden where, you know, the, the serpent slithered up to Adam and Eve and said, you see, you see how it really is with God? He's really not that good. In those moments, we resist those kind of lies and we hold on to God. We hold on to God in the wilderness. We hold on to God when we feel like he's put us on hold. And today, though, I'm going to talk about an even meaner time. Um, I want to talk to you about when life storms are unleashed on us. And it's just like out of nowhere, trouble descends. And there, there's real danger in the storm. We, we find ourselves terrified. So today you're going to join me in the last part of Acts. And when I say the last part of Acts, I mean chapters 21 through 28. We're going to cover eight chapters of the book of Acts. I'm going to read them all very slowly for you. But uh, we're, we're, we're going to cover these, and we're going to see if we can't find some real help in our life storms and maybe discover what in the world these things are all about. So let me take you back for just a moment to Acts chapter 20, verse 22, which I, I referred to last time. But it, it's when Paul um, mentions that he feels compelled or urged or prompted or drawn by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem like ASAP. And so, so Paul's got this burning compulsion from the Holy Spirit. The only thing he really knows about this trip is um, he, he knows that it's, it's going to be hard. He knows that it's going to be a rough trip, and he knows that God wants him there. Now, I just say, thank God Paul didn't know in the moment how rough this, 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 uh, this thing was going to be, this journey to Jerusalem. Thank God he did not know how long it was going to be rough, because I'm not sure he would have done it. But he doesn't have a lot of time to think about it because immediately the storm clouds begin to brew over Paul's life. Um, It just so happens in Acts 21 that he is now on his way to Jerusalem. It's kind of the first leg of the journey. And he stops at at a little town called Tyre, which is in modern-day Syria. 
And, and Paul is stuck for a minute. Um, well, actually, for a week. He, he's going to have to wait a week for a boat to come and to ferry him a little closer to Jerusalem. And so in Acts 21, Paul is just hanging out with some local disciples. He's hanging out with them when unexpectedly, suddenly, out of nowhere in verse 4, these disciples, Luke says, they are prompted by the Holy Spirit to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And while the ink is drying on that scene, we look down to verses 10 through 11, and suddenly a well-known, well-respected prophet named Agabus, he comes strolling up, and he takes Paul's belt. Okay, imagine how uncomfortable this would be. You know, a guy walks up, grabs your belt, undoes Paul's belt, binds his own hands with it, and says, Paul, the Holy Spirit says that in this same way, this is how the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they will bind you and they will hand you over to the Gentiles. And then finally, in verse 12, Everybody around Paul begins to beg him, do not go to Jerusalem. They plead with him, Paul, stay here, stay anywhere but Jerusalem, don't do it. And I just want you to know there's some real tension and there's some real confusion here when we're reading this, but don't fear, okay? God has not gone schizophrenic all of a sudden, okay? The Holy Spirit hasn't become fickle. Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem, get there. Oh, you know what, Paul, never mind, that's not what's happening here. What the Holy Spirit is doing is now that Paul is getting closer, he is telling Paul what's going to happen in Jerusalem, that what is going to specifically unfold in his life is enough to make anybody else turn away. So the Holy Spirit is just giving him intel because he's going to need to know how big this storm is. The size and the strength, just how massive this thing. And he's also letting Paul know that God is in this storm for him. There is a purpose for this thing. So Paul continues, and the storm makes landfall in Paul's life immediately in Acts chapter 21, verse 23, when Paul goes to the temple. Now, just so you know, Paul is going to the temple to worship. Okay, Paul is going to participate in a purification ceremony. So Paul's attitude going to the temple has got to be, my man, I'm going to get close to the Lord. I'm going to have an encounter. I'm going to have a moment. I'm going to get all polished up by the Lord. And so he's going in, um, you know, real upbeat when suddenly he's recognized, okay? Now, I, I want you to understand what this recognition is. We, we, recognition happens in church all the time. You know, sometimes it's like, Phil, how are you, brother? Great to see you. You know, or maybe Neil's preaching and we go, hey, check out Neil, you know? I recognize Neil. He's getting ready to get up and let us have it today in a good way, you know? There's that kind of, rec this is not that kind of recognition, okay? Paul is recognized by some hard-nosed, hyper-religious Jews in this moment. They see him, and then they seize him, okay? These guys whip up a mob immediately, crying out, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man! Paul, he preaches against our people everywhere. He, he, he tells everyone to disobey our laws. He speaks against the temple, which is our worship center. And he even defiles this place. And this crowd hearing this, folks, they go ballistic. This crowd is whipped into a 
fur- uh, just a frenzy and a fervor, and they close in on Paul, who has come to the temple to draw near to the Lord. They close in on him, and they begin to beat him to death, Luke tells us. Now, I'm going to utter a phrase you don't hear very often in connection with the Romans in the New Testament. Thank God Roman guards were close by. Because these guys see what's going on, and they're there to keep law and order, and they step in. And they do their best to stop the madness, but the way they try to stop the madness is they arrest Paul. They arrest him, they bind him, and then the commander, he he, he tries to sort things out, but this crowd is so frenzied, they're so wild, they're, they're so out of control, it's gotten so large, the soldiers are forced to just remove Paul. They just said, we've got to get this guy out of here. And so they begin to lead him to a Roman fortress. But the crowd, the crowd goes with them. The crowd surrounds them. The crowd is behind them. And the crowd is chanting, kill him, kill him. And it's so bad, okay? It, this thing is so nuts that when they finally get to the, to the Roman fortress, the soldiers, okay, picture this. They have to lift Paul up above their heads to carry him through the crowd. I, I, th- I thought I heard a wow. I, I got a wow there too. Folks, this is a storm, all right? You want a definition of a storm? You want a poster, poster child for a storm? This is the poster child. And we know Paul. You know, Paul is brave. Paul is never one to shrink away from anything. So Paul in this moment, and I think it's fascinating, it's amazing, Paul asked the Roman commander for permission to speak to the crowd. And I don't know whether the Roman commander is so shocked by the request or what, but, but he, he grants it to him. And so Paul now addresses the crowd. I'm sure the Romans shush everyone down. And so Paul speaks to the crowd now from chapter 21, verse 37, all the way to chapter 22, 21. And Paul essentially says five things to the crowd. Now, let me tell you what they are. Number one, he says to the crowd, and this is mostly Jews, he says, look, I am a Jew by birth and by upbringing just like you are. Second thing, my life has always been about zeal for the Lord, faithfulness to the Lord, commitment to your God and my God. And then I have also been discipled, just so you know, by Ananias. And that would have meant something to people because Ananias was a a devout observer of the law. He was well known to be a a Jew of high standing. Now, all of that information, okay, that's like a soothing balm to the crowd. That should have calmed the crowd down. But there are those other two things that Paul said to the crowd. He said, Jesus Christ has saved me. He talks about his salvation, his experience on the Damascus Road, and God in a vision has sent me to share Christ with the Gentiles. And when the Jews hear those two words, when they hear Jesus and they hear Gentiles, they erupt all over again. I mean, it's as wild as it was before, and they're screaming things like, away with this man. He isn't fit to live. And then, then they do the thing that like, man, if this happens to you... In, in ancient, if you're ever in the ancient Near East, okay, you get transported in times, uh, you know, way back, and this happens to you, you're in trouble. They throw off their cloaks, and they pick up dust, and they throw it into the air. And that is like the ultimate sign of contempt and judgment. And so now, here is this Roman commander watching this speech, and he's heard enough. 
So he takes Paul, along with the soldiers, into the, to, into the Roman fortress, and he orders that these guys take whips and that they lash Paul until he confesses his crime, whatever in the world his crime is, but suddenly Paul stops them. Paul says, wait, just, just so you know, before you lash me, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen, and I can't be punished without a trial. And when the soldiers hear that, man, they are thinking of the wrath of Caesar. If they break this law, they drop the whips, and they back away. And um, the guards now send him off to trial. And so here is Paul. Man, what a day already, right? I mean, goodness gracious, what a day. Well, he goes before the, the high council now, the Jewish high council, and here are these guys, and they are prepared to throw the book at Paul. But before they launch their attack, Paul pulls an ace out of his sleeve, and he plays it. Paul says to them in Acts 23, 6, and I laughed the first time I heard this, brothers, I'm a Pharisee as were my ancestors. And I'm on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. Now, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? And most of you are going, will you please explain that? I'll be glad to. The Roman high council is made up of two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, here's the deal with both of them. The Sadducees do not believe in resurrection from the dead, okay? That's why they're sad, you see, okay? So remember that. Put them together. That's it. The Pharisees do... I know, bad joke, and you heard it a million times. The Pharisees, though, do believe in resurrection. So do you see what Paul has just done? Paul has just pulled out a theological hand grenade. He pulls the pin, and he just throws it right in the middle of these guys. And I, I think the effect he was going for happens. These Pharisees... And Sadducees, this high council, they're there to try this man. They start fighting. They, they just, because you know what, theologians, I tell you, theologians love nothing better than just to fight about fine points of theology. They start going at it. And it seems like Paul has pulled the maneuver of a lifetime until the high court, they get so violent and so worked up, they begin to just, they begin to pull. Paul is just caught in between these guys. And it looks like he's going to be torn apart. Once again, here's the phrase, thank God for the Romans, because the Romans step in, and Luke says they rescue Paul. They save Paul once again from being torn apart, killed by these guys. And I'm telling you, if I'm Paul, I think if you're Paul, uh, you've got to be a little discouraged at this point, you know? Talk about stormy weather. You talk about a day that just, I mean, you know it's going to be rough in Jerusalem, but my goodness, look at this. A bloodthirsty crowd. Chains. Chance of kill him, kill him. Almost being torn apart by your judges. I mean, Paul's got to be thinking at this point, you know, I, I'm never getting out of this city alive. I mean, I, I have come here to Jerusalem like Christ came to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified by these guys. He's storm-weary. He has to be. And then we get this beautiful little verse in the middle of all this raging. It's like the eye of a hurricane. As in verse 11, God speaks to Paul. And he says to him, be encouraged, Paul. Just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must, you must and you will preach the good news in Rome. So here is Paul. It's just a reminder, man, God is right here with me. 
And my story doesn't end here. The Lord has spoken something differently. But, but just above and beyond that, this is just Papa God loving a child that is just getting beaten up literally, emotionally, and every other way. God just encouraging his child. But see, we have a question here in the text at this point of the story, and it's, well, how is Paul going to get to Rome? Especially if you read between the lines here and you see that now there's also an official plot to take him out. I mean, Paul cannot turn anywhere. He is, he is the focus of everyone's attention. I mean, he is public enemy number one. How does he get out? Well, I'll tell you how he gets out. He gets out under Roman guard. And this is where, if we missed it up to this point, we find out how big this storm is. This storm is so massive, Luke counts it up for us, it takes 470 soldiers to escort Paul out of Jerusalem. Oh my God. I mean, you, you know, you're talking, it's like layer after layer after layer of human shield, you know, with Paul. I mean, it, it's, it's just incredible how many men it takes to get him out of there. And so Paul now is sent to a Roman governor named Felix. And when Paul arrives, um, Felix orders a new trial. He says, Paul, as soon as some of these high councilmen get here, we're going to try you. And, and so some of the Jewish high council arrives, and they are allowed to speak first. And folks, it's the same old lies that they told in the beginning. This man's a troublemaker. He is a riot insider. This man, Paul, is, is, he's a cult ringleader. He's a temple desecrator. And then Paul gets to speak, and his response is bold, it's brilliant, it's also honest. Um, Paul starts off and says, first of all, I just got to Jerusalem, okay? In response to all these charges, I just got there, okay? I mean, I've barely unpacked my bags. I haven't had time to defile the temple, to stir up riots. I, I am not guilty of this. And in, in regard to almost everything else... These men cannot prove a word that they say. They will not prove a word that they say. But by the way, the stuff about Jesus and the way and being a part, it, that's all true. That is all true. He confesses that. But he also adds, I do hold to the same laws that these men hold to. I, I worship the same God. And so here is Felix hearing all this, and he's caught. You know, Felix is up a tree. He cannot possibly rule on this. There's no way he can do it because it's political suicide. You know, if he says that Paul is guilty on that evidence, oh my goodness, Caesar will end him because that's what Caesar does. You know, Caesar is the ultimate period. When he, man, when he moves, it's over. So he, he can't rule against a Roman citizen like this. But he also can't set Paul free because everyone is against Paul. I mean, he's going to anger, he's going to infuriate the Jewish high council. He's just marked him, so he's just stuck. And so Felix does the only thing he can do, he can think of in the moment, which is, I'm just going to keep Paul here. I'm going to keep him under kind of a house arrest for two years. And so for two years, Paul remains there. Now, Felix does give Paul a little bit of freedom. He lets some of his friends come and visit him. And um, you know what Paul does. Paul uses his freedom to preach Christ to everybody. He, he does. I mean, he, he, even, even with uh, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, Paul just shares Jesus Christ. And then finally, Felix's term is up, and a new governor comes into power, and his name is Festus. Festus, okay? 
older generation, do not associate this Festus with gun smoke, okay? I grew up watching that show, and all I could see was Marshall Dillon. You know, don't do it, okay? But this, 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 the original Festus, he becomes governor, and now it's time for a new trial. And so uh, Festus orders this trial, just like the one before. The, the Jewish high council comes back in. They throw out the same baseless accusations. Paul denies everything. It's, it's like a mirror image of the two trials, except at the end of this one, Paul exercises a Roman right. And the Roman right is that he now appeals to Caesar. And he can do that. I want to go before Caesar and let him hear this case. And now Festus is really in a pickle. You talk about being in a jam. I'm using all these food metaphors today, but the, the man is in a jam. So in Acts 25, 23 through 27, Festus calls a political ally, a, a man named King Agrippa, and he says, look, I have a problem. The problem is that Paul is not guilty of anything, but he's appealed to Caesar. And so the dilemma is, I cannot send Paul to Caesar without any kind of a, a criminal transgression. I mean, we all know how Caesar is. You, you got, you, Agrippa, you've got to listen to this man Paul with me, because if I, if I send him to waste Caesar's time, I'm in big trouble. So in Acts 26, Paul shares with Agrippa and Festus. He, he tells them, you know, his whole story, all the backdrop, and of course, being classic Paul, all it is is one long testimony of Jesus Christ. In fact, as I read this, I'm like, he sounds like a street preacher, a tent evangelist. He's just, he really is just evangelizing these two guys, just, just lifting up the name of Jesus. And, and the end of it is, is very notable, three comments. Let me just read these to you. In, in verse 24, afterwards, Festus says to Paul, man, you are insane. Too much study of your scripture has made you crazy. In verse 28, Agrippa says to Paul, what is this, Paul? Do you think you can turn me into a Christian so quickly? I'm, see, they're getting the point here. And then finally, Agrippa turns to Festus and he says, you know, you were right. Paul is innocent of any real charge. And we'd be able to set him free right now that he's outside of Jerusalem. We, we could set him free except for this appeal to Caesar. And so now we get to Acts 27. And Paul is being sent, well, I should say he's being shipped to Rome. He's been put on a cargo ship. He, he's put on this ship as a prisoner. So you can go ahead and think of chains and lockdown and all that. And, and, and now on the way to, to meet with Caesar... A literal storm overtakes the ship. A real physical storm whips up, and it's a bad one. I mean, this is like typhoon, you know, tropical storm. These guys are caught in the sea, and it's terrible. It's so bad that, you know, uh, sailors are like, man, we got to drop the light boats. You know, we got to jump up and swim for it. we got to do anything to get off of this crazy boat. And Paul has to convince them and say, listen, my God has told me that this ship is going to wreck, okay? But everyone who stays on for the shipwreck is going to be saved. And somehow, maybe it's just the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Paul convinces them the shipwrecks and every person aboard is safe. They're stuck on the Isle of Malta and you think, okay, finally, the storm is over. Even the literal storm is over until by a campfire, Paul is bitten by a poisonous snake. But miraculously, the poison does not take effect. And basically, the, the, the story ends 
with Paul making his way to Rome sometime later, he is tried by Caesar and he is found innocent. Now that part is not in scripture, but we know from folks like Eusebius and other historians, Paul had the trial. Paul was, was, was declared innocent. So let me, let me just count up the highlights, and I could count up a lot more than this, but let me just make sure we get it all. A mob beaten, not to the point of death, but, but beaten severely, arrested, carried over the head of soldiers with people chanting, kill him, kill him, kill him, tried three times, shipwrecked, and snake bit. That is one long, unfair storm in a person's life. Can I get an amen on that storm? I mean, that, and, and so the question of this, okay, and notice in this, in this message, one thing I didn't do, I did not def- talk to you about storms in life, did I? I didn't define storms in our lives. Why? Because we all know exactly what this is life, like, don't we? we? We've all experienced storms in our lives, just tragedy, craziness, wildness. We've all experienced this. So, okay, here we have the storm in Paul's life, you know, three and a half plus years or whatever here, but we got this giant thing raging in his life, all these storms in our life that we've gone through. Let me ask you a question. What is the point of this? Is there any point to storms in our lives? Is there any lesson that we can get from these things that descend on us out of nowhere? I mean, is there anything we can apply to our lives when it comes to storms? Just take Paul's life, for example. I would just say yes. In fact, more than yes, I say absolutely. There is a lesson here. And the lesson is this. When it comes to the storms in your life, my life, Paul's life, there is another side to the storm always. There's always another side to the storm. But let me be careful and define this. The other side of the storm is not like the Israelites in the wilderness. It's actually not the promised land. The promised land is not the point of the storm. Or a lot like with the disciples in the boat with Jesus. Everyone remembers that. You know, the weather starts getting rough. The tiny ship is tossed. I mean, it's just craziness. The, 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 the point of that storm was not them getting to the other side. The storm here for Paul, the point of this storm is, is not so Paul finally can enjoy a time of stress-free ministry, which, by the way, he does enjoy at the end of the book of Acts. Listen to these two verses, Acts 28, 30-31. For the next two years after the trial, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, finally, no one tried to stop him. Now, y'all, that is wonderful. That, that, that is, that is low-hanging fruit on the tree, right? That's dessert at Christmas, but that's not the point of the storm in Paul's life. It's a wonderful promise of God. You know, these are great things like this that happen to us. But the point, the lesson, the application of the storm in our lives is about something else entirely. In fact, they're about someone else entirely. The point of the storm for us is Jesus. The point of storms in our lives is not the result of the fall. It is Jesus Christ. 
I don't know where you are theologically, so I'll allow for both ways. God brings situations like this into our life. Or if you want to say, God allows situations like this in our life. God does this to move Jesus to the center of our lives. That's the point of the storm. We go through the storm, we go through the fire, we go through the ringer sometimes because that's where we discover Jesus' power and his provision and his presence best. And I know you don't like it. I don't like it, but you know what? It works. Y'all, it just works. Nothing moves Jesus into the center of our lives like the storms that come our way. And I'll prove it to you. Remember the disciples in the boat with Jesus? You know, the theme song from a minute ago? Um, Okay, so so here they are. They're going to go to the other side of the lake. Jesus is tired, obviously extremely tired, uh, as tired as anyone has ever been before because a storm whips up, water's coming into the boat, the boat really, the tiny boat really is being tossed. I mean, it's a crazy situation. Humanly speaking, they will not make it to the other side, and Jesus is dead asleep. He is sleeping like a baby. And so so the disciples freak out, right? They freak out and they yell to Jesus, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus, did you bring us out here to kill us? How can you sleep at a time like this? Well, Jesus wakes up, doesn't he? You remember what he does? doesn't say a word to the disciples first. He turns to the storm. He looks at the wind and the waves, and he says, Silent, be still. And everything is immediately calm, just like that. And then he turns to the disciples, and he says to them, Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? You know, where is your faith? And in the Greek, it's oligopistoi. You little faith ones, what's going on here? And listen, at this point, we could have some fun at the disciples' expense. We could pick on the disciples, you know, oh, look at the disciples, man, what's going on with these guys? We can make fun of them all day long, but we can miss the one thing that they did right. What they did right in the midst of that storm is they called on Jesus. They called on Jesus. And Jesus stopped the storm. And y'all, because of that, because of this calling on Christ, and him doing what only he can do, it moves Jesus into the center of their lives like he had never been before. I would argue that those disciples, you know, they do a little more Marx Brothers or Three Stooges throughout the rest of the New Testament. You know, they stumble along and they have their bad moments. They're never the same after the storm. There is something profoundly different about these men. In fact, their confession tells us, what do they say after Jesus does it? Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus! It's just a radical moment. It can only happen in the storm. You know, for us, every storm is different. You know, a different storm in your life than my life, than your life, than your All of our storms are different. Have you ever noticed that sometimes we can be in the same storm with, with somebody and we have totally different experiences in the storm? You know, from different perspectives. Every storm is different. Every storm is unique. But every storm can serve the, can serve the same purpose in our lives and be this God-given event where we come away and we know Jesus better. We love Jesus better. And you know, the next time we're caught, the next time, you know, it starts brewing, we look to him just like that. Storms can do that in our lives. 
But I'll tell you what we have to do in the storm, okay? And this is, I'm not just a member of this club, I'm the president of this club, all right? When the storm comes, the hardest thing to do, but the thing that we must do, is put down our oars. Put them down. Put down our bailing buckets. Throw our flare guns to the side. In other words, don't try to manage the situation. Do not try to fix the storm. Folks, we do this. Well, if I just do this, everything will stop. It is humanly impossible for us to stop storms. We cannot do it. But I tell you what we can do. In those moments, we can lock on to Jesus, and we must look to Jesus Christ. Do you remember, he's not just Lord, he's also Savior. He's also Rescuer. And, and, and don't get hung up in how you look to him. You can be like the disciples here in the storm. I mean, read the Psalms, okay? Read the book of Psalms. What is the book of Psalms? Half of it is David going, oh, God, help. Just like the disciples. Man, go ahead and cry out. It doesn't have to be pretty. Just lock on to him. That's what we do. Or we can be like Paul at, at the end of Acts. You know, I'm amazed at Paul's poise, but think about all he's been through before Acts 21. What does Paul do? Well, he locks on to Jesus by just continuing to listen to God, continuing to do what he's called to do faithfully. Either one of those are brilliant options in the storm. The storm is not a sign that you are a sinner or you're a failure, or it's God's wrath. Listen, the storms in our life are there for a reason. And the reason is John 9, verse 3. Okay, it is about the glory of God moving from out there in our lives to in here within us. That's what the storm is for. The storm is also about the glory of God shining out of you to a world of people that are also caught in storms. Man, God is all about doing amazing things in the hardest moments of our life. And I want you to be encouraged. Maybe you're in the meantime, like Chris talked about last week, the waiting place. Oh, God, come on. How, when, when does this appointment start? Maybe you're there. Maybe you're in, in a meaner time, which are these storms. I want to say a, a, another thing to end this thing is I do want to say this to you as a pastor and someone who loves you. Maybe I don't even know you yet. If you are outside of relationship with Jesus Christ, okay, if you, if you have not become a child of God yet spiritually, when it comes to the storm, you have nowhere to turn to in the storm. You have no one to turn to. Your wife cannot save you from the storm. Your friends, your children, even if your circumstances shift, it's not going to save you from the storm. Today is a perfect time to ask Jesus Christ into your life as Lord, as God, but as a rescuer, as a Savior. Invite Jesus Christ to just come and be the, the center of your life. So here's how we're going to end today. We're going to leave the front open, and I want to invite anybody who would like to to just come up front, and you can bring yourself and your stormy situation before God. Um, we got a final song. And I just invite you to come forward. And listen, you can bring your failure, your doubts, your questions. You, you can bring your loved ones, your impossible situations here. And today, just kind of lay them at the foot of the cross as you come up. And um, it's an opportunity to worship. So uh, I'll say a, a quick prayer just to open up. And you guys take us into ministry. And listen, if you need prayer, you might come up today and say, I don't need anybody to pray with me. I just need to lay this thing down. I can do that. That's great. If you want somebody to pray with you, there'll be folks trolling around up here, okay? 
If you look like you need prayer, you alert us, man. We'll descend on you and we'll just pray together in Jesus' name. All right? Part of that is you're not in this alone. All right? So let me pray for us. God, we love you. And Father, what an amazing God you are. And I am so grateful that that you don't turn our life into, um, you know, a, a, a scene that's like the backdrop of the sound of music where everything's beautiful and perfect. I thank you that you are with us in the valley. You are with us in the storm. God, that you show up in impossible situations. That you long to make Jesus not number one in our lives, but the only one in our lives. And God, I know as pastor of this church, I need that. So Jesus, come. Take your place. And Father, I just pray that as as we come forward, or maybe we stay where we are, we, we open our hands, and we just let go of the impossible situation. Father God, take it from us in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, you are so free to meet us right where we are in Jesus' name. Welcome. We welcome your ministry right now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.